T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. This past week, KCBS has taken a close-up and local look at the ramifications of the national opioid epidemic. In her three-part series, The Opioid Epidemic, The San Francisco Prescription, KCBS reporter Jenna Lane introduced us to those who've turned to street heroin to feed an addiction that likely began with a doctor's prescription pad. And we've learned what San Francisco is doing to fight the tide of related overdose deaths with its harm reduction program, which appears to be making a positive difference. So to continue the coverage of this national emergency, today on In-Depth, we're examining how this crisis began and how to get a grip on what the Centers for Disease Control calls an epidemic. My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford. She's written a book about the prescription addiction crisis called Drug Dealer MD, how doctors were duped, patients got hooked, and why it's so hard to stop. In it, she explains the forces at work here are financial, medical, and societal. Dr. Anna Lemke, welcome to In-Depth. Oh, I'm happy to be here. I was most fascinated with your explanation of the West's and American medicine's pain narrative. Could you explain that to us, how medicine looked at pain in the past, how it looks at pain now, and the elimination of it or the management of it, and what we've come to expect as patients? About 100, 150 years ago, um, doctors actually thought pain had health benefits for patients. So they thought, for example, that experiencing pain during a surgery uh, would boost the immune system, would boost uh, cardiovascular heart function. And then they also thought that there were uh, spiritual benefits from enduring pain and uh, surviving uh, this was the, the the way that doctors oriented on pain within medical culture, you know, about 100, 150 years ago. Uh, opioids, uh, for example, what we consider today to be opioids, things like Vicodin, Oxycontin, Norco, um, you know, that existed uh, 100, 150 years ago in the form of opium. And then later uh, in the late 1800s, um, uh, morphine and heroin derivatives uh, uh, were made in the laboratory in order to treat uh, various forms of pain. But doctors used them very sparingly because they were very uh, concerned about uh, the risk of addiction. But I think imp- more importantly, um, th- there was this notion that pain is salutary. Today, that's very different. Today, uh, doctors are terrified for their patients to be in pain. Patients themselves are terrified to experience pain. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that our idea of the uh, of the impacts of pain on the brain and on our overall well-being have uh, drastically changed. Now we think of pain as literally dangerous, not just in the moment because it's painful, but we believe that pain can leave a kind 
of psychic scar that begets future pain. And that's true for both uh, mental pain or emotional anguish as well as physical pain. And let me just give a couple of examples. Uh, in the mental health care field, uh, we have a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And that diagnosis is basically founded on this idea that painful emotional experiences will leave a psychic scar that lead to future emotional distress that we often call or diagnose a post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, this is a really um, modern idea. Um, it's, you know, th this idea that, that, that pain can leave you um, kind of broken um, is, is really, really a very new idea. In the physical pain world, uh, there's now a whole new category of pain diagnoses called centralized pain syndromes. Um, an example would be something like fibromyalgia. And again, there, we don't exactly know what that's all about or what the neurobiology is, but even the concept that um, acute pain can evolve into a chronic pain, even in the absence of any visibly um, you know, diagnosable disease process, is a very modern concept um, that emerged really only in the last three decades. And, and this change or this shift in our narrative around pain um, has contributed to the overprescribing of opioids because both patients and doctors are worried that if they don't eliminate all pain, that the patient uh, will, uh, will be set up to experience more pain in the future. Let me ask a couple of questions about, about that particular idea. You use the word believe and that it is an idea uh, this this pathway to chronic pain if uh, acute pain isn't managed. Is that still just an idea, a theory, or is that based in neuroscience? Do we know? We don't really know. You know, the, the brain really still is a black box. We have all kinds of diagnoses and we have all kinds of medicines, but at the end of the day, we, we have no idea what we're doing when it comes to diagnosing and treating a mental illness, or for that matter, pain. And what, what people aren't aware of and need to be more aware of is the extent to which, again, cultural and social narratives influence the experience of pain. This isn't to say that, that pain isn't real. I mean, people are devastated by their pain conditions, and I have a great deal of empathy uh, for people who suffer from pain. But that the way we think about and orient on that pain uh, can make a big difference. And it has been used to lead us to the over-prescription over of opioids or the goal to completely eliminate pain. Yeah. So part of this, so, so these cultural narratives that, that pervade medicine, that pain is dangerous, that, uh, that the body is not resilient, that, uh, that the body cannot heal itself, and that doctors have almost infinite powers to fix what's broken. These are the narratives that have, I think, contributed to uh, the epidemic of overprescribing opioids in this country. And it's important to realize that the current opioid epidemic is first and foremost an epidemic of overprescribing. We're continuing our coverage this week of the opioid epidemic. My guest is Dr. Anna Lemke, chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford and author of the book Drug Dealer MD. I'm Jane McMillan. What are the common names of these drugs that people would recognize if we come out of surgery or go to a physician for pain management and, and drugs are offered? Yeah, so the common names are Vicodin, Norco, Percocet, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Fentanyl, Morphine. These are all prescription opioids. In your book, you write, 
part of the reason that medicine has this narrative of eliminating pain and that opioids can be used as much as necessary or as much as we think they might be necessary is that Big Pharma has had a hand in shaping the view of how these drugs work and whether or not they're going to be addictive in any given setting, and that that is not based on science. Can you explain how this happened? Big Pharma is hugely to blame for our current opioid epidemic. They have uh, behaved in a completely unethical and mercenary way. There's all kinds of ways in which they have led to the misconceptions that that opioids are not addictive, uh, especially when prescribed by a doctor for a medical condition. That, by the way, is totally untrue. And they've also perpetrated the myth that opioids work for chronic pain, uh, which is also, uh, there's no evidence to support that. Opioids are great treatment short term for acute pain or even used intermittently in chronic pain conditions. But when taken every day over a long period of time, uh, they tend, they do, there's no evidence that they work and there's lots of evidence that they cause lots of harms, including addiction and death. But I think what's really important for people to realize is that, you know, yes, Big Pharma did direct-to-consumer advertising ads on TV. Yes, it's true that there are uh, completely evil doctors out there who are taking kickbacks from the pharmaceutical industry to prescribe more opioids. Nurses, too, by the way. But I think, you know, what is the real driver behind this epidemic is that Big Pharma hit on this brilliant idea that they would infiltrate medicine to convince doctors that prescribing more opioids was not something to enhance their bottom line, but was actually supported by the evidence. So in a Trojan horse style, they cherry-picked certain academic thought leaders. They cherry-picked certain studies which supported and promoted more opioid prescribing. These were very minor bits of evidence in the medical literature. They infiltrated and lobbied the Federation of State Medical Boards, the FDA, the Joint Commission. These are all the watchdog organizations in medicine. And they basically convinced doctors that prescribing opioids was evidence-based, and that's absolutely not the case. So again, I think it's important to realize that big Pharma did this in a very insidious and sly sort of way by infiltrating a lot of the educational venues where doctors go to learn what is evidence-based medicine and how to practice it. And they were doctors were essentially tricked. And once that process began, kind of a, a medicine groupthink, and then the expectation from patients matched that, how have you come to uh, this position to be able to say no? To, to some patients under certain circumstances and, in fact, help get them off of these drugs. How do doctors buck that trend when it's considered best practice? Well, it's very hard to do. Uh, you know, what, what, what motivates most well-intentioned doctors when they get up in the morning and thinking, think about going to the office? It's their mutually affectionate relationships with their patients. I know that's what motivates me. You know, I have to spend a good portion of my day filling out forms, you know, begging insurance companies to pay for care, calling pharmacies to straighten up misunderstandings. But what keeps me going is those patients I'm going to see, and we're going to have a positive interaction in which my competence as a healer is enhanced, and they express gratitude and feel that they've been helped. And when we encounter 
patients who are misusing or addicted to prescription drugs, we have to have very hard conversations with them that really threatens uh, that therapeutic alliance. And so it's very hard to do and very hard to convince uh, doctors to engage in those conversations. Furthermore, you know, doctors' professional advancement these days is highly tied to patient satisfaction scores. So patients are now routinely asked to fill out a satisfaction survey when they leave a doctor's office, or they have lots of venues on the internet where they can go on and, uh, you know, rate a doctor for the whole world to see. When I go around to, uh, you know, all around the country trying to encourage doctors to prescribe opioids more judiciously, uh, what they say to me is, yeah, I'll I'll stop prescribing when you can promise me that my patient is going to give me a good satisfaction survey score. It's it's almost like the entire medical community is on a big Yelp scoreboard. Exactly. The entire medical community is on a big Yelp scoreboard. It's really scary. You know, it's it's like, you know, patients are now customers. And, and I, I often say doctors really are waiters. I mean, we sort of uh, are there to kind of, uh, you know, ask our, our customers what, what they want on their menu choice today and then prescribe it. So it's a, it's a sad state of affairs. And it, we really do have to uh, change it because um, for all the, you know, excellent reform and outreach that's happening now to try to stem the tide of this epidemic. I do believe that unless we have some serious health care reform, um, we're not really going to change the uh, fundamental problem here, which is that, you know, medicine has become mechanized, industrialized, and has become a big business. And as you mentioned, it is marketed farm pharmaceuticals directly to consumers uh, via advertising. And that brings us back to your description of uh, some doctors as waiters. That's right. I mean, so, you know, not only, you know, our doctors are really no longer in a role oftentimes where they're recommending treatment, patients are coming in and saying, I want X, Y, or Z. And if the, the doctor doesn't give it to them, then, then there's a problem there. And to take, you know, to educate patients about the pros and cons of a given medication takes a lot of time. And doctors don't have a lot of time. You know, there are, you know, family medicine doctors who have 10, maybe 15 minutes to address a whole host of medical problems. And then on top of that, they have to have, you know, a hard conversation about the prescription drug or talk about potential addiction. It's very hard to do that. So I think one of the fundamental healthcare reforms that needs to happen is that doctors need to be financially incentivized to actually spend time with patients. They need to be incentivized to provide treatments other than pills, procedures, and operations. They need to be paid to actually talk to their patients, to educate them, and to provide non-opioid alternatives for pain. And unfortunately, that's not happening. There are places uh, in medical care for opioids, for pain control. Uh, you've written that as well and, and have said that very clearly. But how does one as a patient and, of course, as a doctor look at when does it end? When do you start tapering off? Are, are there uh, – you said that the pharmaceutical companies have gotten into best practices in an insidious way, but are there any guidelines or helpful – Uh, information to know how long opioids can be used safely and efficiently and when it's morphed into a chronic syndrome. And, And is there a use for opioids for chronic pain? 
So that yeah, that's a that's a tricky question to to answer because we certainly want to individualize patient care, and there are patients out there who benefit from taking opioids daily and who don't have um, adverse consequences and are not addicted and are not misusing. And I think it's fair to say that those individuals should continue to receive an opioid prescription. Again, within reason, we see so many people on astronomical doses, it's hard to imagine that the benefits could um, outweigh the risks. But it's very important that we don't just simply, um, you know, one size fits all it and take everybody off of opioids. There are certainly people who are not addicted, not misusing, and can benefit. Having said that... um, I think there are probably many more people out there um, who are experiencing more harm than help from their opioid prescription and would benefit from a very slow taper. Um, and so the, the way that I have these discussions with my patients is I just really talk about cost-benefit analysis, you know, um, just trying to weigh um, how much the opioid is helping them, how functional they are against all of the many serious side effects associated with chronic opioid use, depression, uh, cognitive problems, serious constipation, uh, fatigue, Uh, what we call hypoxemia or low oxygenation of the blood. What happens over time is that opioids, especially at high doses, can suppress respiration so that people are walking around, um, you know, really not getting enough oxygen. If you add to that, then problems with obstructive sleep apnea. Even when taken as prescribed, people can uh, fall asleep and never wake up again when they're taking high-dose opioids. So it's really important to have this discussion with patients weighing uh, the risks, benefits, and alternatives. And then I think when we as physicians determine that the risks outweigh the benefits, we need to um, initiate a slow taper. And I want to emphasize slow. A lot of patients, you know, try to who are on opioids say, "Well, I'm going to stop them," and then just abruptly discontinue. They experience terrible withdrawal, pain, and then they restart again. So let me just emphasize to you know any of your listeners that if you want to get off of opioids, the way to do it is in 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 an ideal way to under a medical supervision and very slow where you don't change the number of times you take the dose per day, but you change the amount a little bit over time. We're talking about the opioid and prescription drug epidemic in the United States and how we got here, what to do about it. This with Dr. Anna Lemke, chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford. Her book is Drug Dealer MD. I'm Jane McMillan. In our reporting, we've learned that California is in better shape than other states in terms of an opioid, a public crisis opioid epidemic. Doesn't mean it's not a problem, but in better shape. Is that due in part because of the prescription database that you refer to in your book? That's how you found out in California that some of your patients were getting prescriptions from other doctors? So the prescription drug monitoring system, which in California is called CURES, has been an absolute boon to medical practice. And I believe that every doctor should access that database when prescribing an opioid or any other potentially addictive drug. And it certainly revolutionized my own practice. What it meant was that whenever I was prescribing any kind of potentially addictive medication, whether Vicodin or Xanax or Adderall, I could go onto that database and just double check if that if that patient 
patient was re receiving any other similar prescriptions from any other doctors. And what I found astounded me. I mean, there were little old ladies that I would never have imagined uh, were struggling with prescription drug misuse or addiction, only to find out that they had gone to three or four, uh, you know, other doctors. So I think it, I think it's very important for doctors to have access to the database. Every state in this country has a prescription drug monitoring um, database, except for the state of Missouri, and the state of Missouri is working on that now. I know Senator McCaskill is uh, aggressively advocating uh, for a prescription drug database uh, to be um, implemented in the state of Missouri. But those kinds of objective data points are really important because, um, you know, I treat people with addiction. I see them every day, and I still can't tell who's lying to me and who isn't. Mm -hmm. So you need to have those additional data points. Um, but they're not the only ones. Another important data point is to talk to family, talk to significant others in that patient's life. I think it's also important to acknowledge that when patients appear to be lying about the way that they're using these medications, it's important to recognize that it's really the addiction uh, driving uh, that lying and that behavior. The addiction sort of overwhelms our moral compass and gets us to do things that we would otherwise, you know, not imagine doing. And, and I think that reframe can help physicians have empathy for individuals instead of feeling hoodwinked or duped or manipulated. Once a doctor decides that a patient does not need opioids for pain control any longer, but that patient is addicted, we are seeing the move to heroin, which is a cheaper alternative, um, easier to get, certainly on the street, no prescription necessary. Is it, in fact, kind of driving, just the, the, the idea to just say no, no more, driving folks to the street? I absolutely agree with you. A great tragedy of this opioid epidemic is that we are not providing adequate access to treatment for opioid addiction. Uh, so people are having to turn to whatever means they can find uh, to either maintain their addiction or, you know, to try to get help. And that means people are laying out huge sums of money to go to private rehabs, uh, you know, some of which are not reputable. Um, and this is really a tragedy. I mean, you know, here we have this public health disaster. And within the House of Medicine, we barely acknowledge addiction as a disease. And when I go around to talk to doctors, I say to them, you know what? Think of addiction as a disease, even if you don't really believe it is one. Because if you continue to ignore it, you will just perpetuate this problem, and you're here to help people. So conceptualize addiction as a disease, because we conceptualize a lot of other invisible disorders as diseases. We have no problem with that. Put this on your problem list and do what you can to get patients treatment. But I will say, again, it's not individual doctors that are necessarily to blame. I mean, doctors are ignorant, and we have to do that, do a much better job educating uh, doctors from the first day of medical school about addiction. They get very little training. But really, the, the bigger harm is done by the fact that we have a, you know, we have no medical infrastructure uh, for people to get treatment for addiction. Insurance companies won't pay for it. Doctors aren't trained in it. There's no place for people to go. You cannot walk into your primary care doctor's office or the ED and say, I have an opioid addiction. Will you help me? They, they just simply won't have almost anything to offer you. And this is a real tragedy. In terms of public health and a, and a crisis and ways to intercept this. Once someone has had to turn to the streets and turn to heroin and are now addicted to that, as an addiction specialist and someone who, a doctor who helps folks change that in their lives, are you in favor of safe injection services that cities or communities might offer? Uh, San Francisco certainly uses 
naloxone, keeping some opioid death numbers lower than in other cities, uh, methadone treatments. What What is your advice as we as a community and now the nation looks at this as a public health crisis? There is excellent evidence-based treatment for opioid addiction. If only we had an infrastructure that could provide people with that treatment, we would be a lot better off. What are those treatments? Opioid agonist therapy in the form of methadone maintenance treatment and something called buprenorphine naloxone, which is also an opioid, that both of those have unique properties. They are opioids, but they have unique properties, and they can be used to treat opioid addiction, and they are absolutely transformative. And yet, insurance companies... Only very few are paying for that kind of care. We don't have enough doctors who are trained in delivering that care. So again, we really need to change that. There is good treatment out there. We have a very good response rate. We have decades of multiple placebo-controlled randomized trials across different countries showing that these that these uh, you know that these treatments work. We have to get over our whatever that obstacle is for people against those kinds of treatments. Safe injection sites, let me just explain for folks what that means. That means you provide a safe place for people to go and inject illegal drugs like heroin uh, in a way that's going to reduce the secondary harm caused by, for example, using dirty needles. So this is to reduce uh, transmission of HIV, hepatitis C, to reduce um, skin infections. And it's also a way, so I am in favor of safe injection sites, and it's also a way to bring people into treatment. When people come to a place where they are treated respectfully and empathically, and then there are healthcare providers who then have the opportunity to try to sell them on a better path and say, hey, you know, instead of trying to score heroin three times a day, you know, have you thought about methadone maintenance? Have you thought about buprenorphine naloxone? Um, And I always like to tell people that, you know, this is not just... Uh, like, you know, homeless people who, you know, who, you know, who you can't relate to. You know, I treat Stanford students who are on buprenorphine, naloxone, opioid agonist therapy, um, you know, whose lives have been absolutely positively transformed by this medication. Now, it's it's not a cure-all for, for everybody, but for people for whom it works, it's, it's absolutely life-saving. You know, I have a patient who tried five different times to matriculate at Stanford and just couldn't make it work. He kept returning to heroin use. Uh, Finally, he got on buprenorphine naloxone. He came back to Stanford, straight-A student, graduated with honors, and now he's getting a PhD. That's a very hopeful story. So as we're, there are so many hopeful stories like that, you know, and it's really discouraging for me to open the paper and, and read one story after another about buprenorphine pill mills. Yes, there are buprenorphine pill mills. You know, pill mill doctors exist even in addiction medicine, you know, a great embarrassment and source of shame for me personally to see that people in my field um, are engaging in this kind of poor care. But what we don't see enough of is the success stories, the people who actually get better with treatment. And there are so many of them. If we're looking nationally now at a task force and and some type of movement uh, on this public health crisis, where's the best place to intercept it at the beginning of the problem? I think on a public health level, we need to follow the money. And by that, I mean we need to incentivize doctors to stop prescribing so prolifically for minor and chronic pain conditions. And we need to incentivize doctors to use non-opioid alternatives. 
Looking at big pharma, again, you know, we have to make them feel the pain. And right now they have so much money and, you know, we have to make them pay. There's lawsuits all over the country. I think that's great. I hope every single one of those wins. There's also an interesting um, new kind of uh, um, legislation that's gone through in some states. I know West Virginia is looking at this um, to basically make the pharmaceutical industry pay a tax on every milligram of morphine they sell in a given state. So to pay a penny for every milligram of morphine and then use that money to um, help treat the the people who have been harmed by opioids. Well, we've discussed opioids today, but I know that in your practice you deal with addictions to other prescribed medications And there's the mental health piece of it as well. I hope you'll come back so we can talk about this some more. Oh, I'd love to. Dr. Anna Lemke, thank you so much for joining us on In-Depth today. Very much appreciate your time and expertise. Happy to be here. Thanks for helping me get the word out. Dr. Anna Lemke is the chief of the Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic at Stanford. Her book, Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. And if you missed any of KCBS reporter Jenna Lane's three-part series, The Opioid Epidemic, The San Francisco Prescription, you can find it, along with this program, on our website, cbssf.com. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9, KCBS. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.